0: We'll take your Bibles and open them back up to the book of Joel. That's where we were last week, and I want to continue the message that I uh, shared with you uh, last week. So, Joel chapter uh, 2 is where we are, and we'll read our text in just a bit. Uh, a bit. Um, because America, at its uh, best, uh, influence does not appear in Bible prophecy, maybe even its existence, a uh, question arises and that is uh why is that i mean if america is and by all regards uh, the most uh, powerful empire that has ever existed and uh, is still the most powerful nation uh in the world why do we not see it in bible prophecy now today i'm not going to deal with that specific uh, topic completely i'll come back in this series uh in the weeks ahead and i'm going to talk i'm going to do Uh, a couple of messages on that very thing. Where is America in Bible prophecy? But it still gives rise to the question of why do we not see uh, America reflected in prophecy? And uh, given what is currently going on in America and the increasing secularization of our country and uh, the departure of our country from its foundational principles, uh, the lack of a unified kind of purpose Uh, that is all worth examining and and uh, worth uh, trying to see uh, what is the role of America in these days Uh, and I share these two messages with you last week and this week to help us see where we are, uh, how did we get here and uh, what hope do we have for our future now let me take a moment if you will and review for you what we talked about last week foundational cracks in America um, and uh, I gave those to you four of them I'm not going to deal with them at length you can go back and get that message if you didn't get a chance to hear it I would urge you to do so uh, because it is a partner to this message today but the first uh, uh, four things that I talked about in that message was the foundational cracks the fissures that are i believe undermining uh, the health of our nature uh, our um, nation and its future and if we don't understand these we'll have a difficult time repairing them for sure uh, the bible says in psalms 11:3 that if the foundations are destroyed what can the righteous do and so it's important for us to understand what's happening to the foundation uh, in our nation i said last week first of all Uh, it is being affected a crack in the foundation is related to the decisions of our court and even this week if you were paying attention we had uh, wild swings in decisions uh, issued by our uh, Supreme Court. We also talked about the deconstruction of history and once again all you've got to do is right now in particular is watch the news and read the newspapers and you'll see uh, the deconstruction of American history happening Before your eyes Uh, we also talked about the despising of free speech uh, and uh, how that is affecting uh, our nation and our future I fully believe and I don't say this tongue in cheek at all the day will come when the the message that I preached last week or even this message today will not be tolerated in this country or will be labeled as uh, hate speech just because I've spoken truth Uh, so we see this uh, affecting our our foundations the fabric of our nation the despising of free speech which by the way is is uh, one of the first guaranteed rights in the Constitution but now we understand free speech to mean only what the left thinks is free and then um, uh, fourth we talked about the denial of biblical truth and I believe this is uh, more significant than any of the others and I'll tell you why because once you give up truth a foundation of truth everything from there begins to crack and fall apart and uh we have we were birthed in biblical truth i didn't just say that everybody that founded this nation were solid thoroughgoing born again spirit-filled believers that's not what i said but they did understand the value of scripture and the foundations of faith and uh, if you go all the way back to the Puritans who landed here in America, which by the way, nobody talks about the Puritans and their belief that they were establishing a new nation, a new uh, city uh, built uh, on the hill like Jerusalem, a new kind of place for the work of God to be carried out. Uh, none of our students today are learning this kind of history. They're not learning about the foundational matters, they're not learning about those who first discovered our lands and all of that. And that's being rewritten. in in fact it's being uh, written to make us hostile uh, and those sorts of things but the denial of biblical truth uh, creates an incredible crack in the foundations of a nation and so the question uh, of this message uh, today is is it too late for America well there are those who say that we've crossed a line from which we will never recover there are many out there today Uh, who are saying we have crossed this line and we will never come back from this line we will never recover uh, 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 from where we are and I think that's possible it is quite possible that we may never recover from where we are and I'm talking about foundationally I'm not talking about things like COVID and and what its effect on by the way uh, churches we know it will never be the same because of things that have been changed as a result of COVID-19. I, I hope for different kinds of days down the road, but uh, uh, all that are in ministry uh, understand that we'll be doing things different for a long, long, long time. But at any rate, um, uh, to the foundational issues, there are those who believe that we've just crossed the line, whenever, and they have some biblical basis for saying that. They have the historical basis of how God dealt with nations and people that followed Him but drifted away and wandered from Him. The Old Testament is full of examples of that. The life of Israel, in fact, our passage points a bit to that. And then, if you won't go to Romans chapter one, I don't think there's a more appropriate picture in the Scripture of America than Romans chapter one. And go read that. And so if you're of that uh, persuasion that believes that America has crossed a line, that it won't come back from, you have a lot of support and you have a biblical reason for that. Then there there are others who firmly believe that there is still hope for America and that America can yet reaffirm its principled biblical foundation and see God move across uh, our nation, a kind of fourth great awakening if you will i've been reading a book in uh recent uh, weeks on uh the various revival movements across america it's of great interest uh, to us uh right now and there have been dark dark times in american history and yet god has moved uh through his people by the way he has moved here through the church before he moved I- anywhere else and uh that, and so Uh, there is hope for a a great awakening of sorts and there are many who believe that I too believe it is possible that God will yet move again across our land and if you need biblical support for that you can go look at the wicked city of Nineveh and see how the prophet Jonah spoke and they repented and uh, God relented the Bible said from the the wrath that he was going to bring upon them so I believe uh, that that is uh, possible uh, but the, the decision is not up to us in the sense that we don't make the ultimate call. God makes the call. But God does make the call regarding the response of his people. And so in that sense, we have, we have a say. Now, we don't understand the mysteries of how God, uh, 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 what God responds to and doesn't. And when it says that God relents uh... do we have that kind of influence well the bible teaches us that god has allowed himself to be influenced by the pursuit of his people toward him does that make sense and so with that in mind um... i want us to look at our passage again today and i want to share with you what i believe are three uh... keys to america's hope and america's future would you stand with me this morning if you're physically able to do so we're going to read our passage again Joel chapter 2, verse 12, we begin there. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach a byword among the nations why should they say among the peoples where is their god lord jesus uh, we come to you humbly asking you to speak to us to enlighten our hearts uh, to move among us and move across this land and lord let it be because we sought you let it be because we took serious the message and the challenge of the hour. Let it be because we know that our hope is in Jesus Christ and Him alone. And so, Father, would You speak through Your Word today to our hearts? Would You tune our minds in? And, God, would You cause us to hear very carefully, not just listen, but hear very carefully what it is. As as Christ has told us, He that has ears to hear, let Him hear. May we hear today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, and you may be seated. Now let me set this passage up uh, because we didn't deal with it a lot last week. We kind of read it and we used some uh, supporting uh, passages in our uh, time together. But let me kind of set this passage up for you. The book of Joel, or Joel, Joel because it is a combination of two words for God. The name Joel is both the name Jehovah and Yahweh combined anytime you hear the word like el uh in a it you're reading in a page, like Bethel. Bethel means bet in uh uh hebrew is house and el is god so beth el would be the house of god all right joel would be uh simply put it would be like saying yahweh is god uh yahweh is god and uh it, at any rate, this, this book begins in chapter 1, it begins with uh, uh, an invasion of locusts that had devastated God's people, and it was an act of God's judgment upon them. It had wiped their crops out, uh, it had wiped uh, out their their uh, livelihood, uh, it had brought great uh, uh, punishment into their lives. And The prophet makes clear it was an act of God's judgment. God was trying to get their attention. He was warning them with uh, this uh, plague of locusts that he had sent. And he tells them in chapter 1, he says, Awake, wake up, see what's going on. And he tells them to lament, that is to grieve and to mourn. uh, And and, and then he tells them to seek God's mercy. And then in chapter 2, it changes just a bit. They're coming off the heels of this uh, devastation economically and uh, 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 physically uh, from the locusts that had destroyed everything about their livelihood. And they're coming off of that, and God warns them again. God offers a new warning. He says, now, Essentially, it is this. Now, if you don't learn that lesson, there's another army that's coming. And the next army is going to be worse. Than the first plague, the plague of the locusts, the next will be literally a physical army, is what he's talking about to them at that time, and he alludes to two things. He alludes to the potential for an army from the north to invade them uh, at that time period, but he also speaks of an ultimate invasion on the day of the Lord at, toward the end of all things, the end of the the age, and so he tells them um or he warns them through joel the prophet and interestingly there appears to be a rare occurrence of obedience to the prophetic preaching of joel do you know this has happened jeremiah if you read the book of jeremiah and other prophetic books you see so often where god would warn uh, the people of what was coming if they did not turn back to him or repent but rarely do we actually see them turn in Jeremiah for example Jeremiah warns them and warns them and warns them about an invading an invasion an enemy that's going to overtake them and interestingly enough they come back to Jeremiah and say you're a false prophet we've got other prophets who tell us what we want to hear and we choose to believe them and that tended to be the normal pattern for Israel when they were confronted What they would do is say, well, we'll just find people that will tell us what we want to (coughs) hear. Excuse me. I'm afraid that America has chosen to listen to who it wants to listen to instead of hearing what God has said about its behavior and uh, its deeds. And that was the typical. But in this case, in Joel's uh, book, it's interesting because we have one of the rare occasions where where the prophetic message and the prophetic preaching causes the people to say, we better listen to this. We better hear this. I personally, and this is just my personal opinion, I think God has been sending warnings to this nation for over a decade. I think he has been warning this nation for over a decade, and I think this nation, it, it, it goes into crisis mode, and then when it gets through one of the crises, it gets further from God. Further and further from God and uh i believe we're much like these people and unless we repent then we have crossed a line we can't come back from does that make sense but if we repent and if we return to god and this chapter is all about that if we return to god then there's great hope for us now the priests took the warnings of joel and judgment they took it to heart and so what they did is they called the people uh together for prayer and fasting in a solemn assembly Now, you heard uh, uh, Chuck mention that, and uh, uh, some, uh, by the way, uh, weeks before I had studied back through this passage, I had, God had put in my heart, you need to call the people together. We need to have a special time of prayer, and so this Wednesday night, July 15th, from 6 to 7, in this uh, worship center, we're going to gather, and I want to invite you to be here. If you want to wear a mask, you wear a mask, gloves, whatever, we'll spread out all over this building. It's going to be guided prayer. But I believe this is a time for us to get on our face before God. Uh, I believe it is a time for us to say, God, we want to do our part. Look, I can't do this for, uh, I'm, I'm not the shepherd for other congregations, and I'm not fussing at other congregations, but I know what God has put on my heart is your shepherd. And as far as we are concerned, let us be people who hit the knee and seek God in a time of great crisis. And I believe a warning for America and for the church. Al Mohler, in his recent book, The Gathering Storm, tells about the French Revolution's attempt to replace Christianity with reason. And he goes on to articulate the subsequent consequences that happened. Uh, The French Revolution, by the way, was an absolute historical disaster. And in his book, he writes, and and he says this, and I quote, When the French Revolution swept through the streets of Paris, the radical revolutionaries sought to eradicate the Christian heritage of France on October 10, 1793 the revolutionaries marched into Notre Dame and replaced the statue of the Virgin Mary with a statue of the goddess of reason and by the way that's the same Notre Dame that burned down uh, recently and that's another well I won't get into that And so so, he he writes, and so a society framed, forged, and founded entirely upon the Christian worldview tried to purge itself of all Christian uh, vestiges. Hello? The French Revolution pursued a radical vision of a secular worldview governed not by religious belief, but by the cult of reason. But predictably, the cult of reason failed. It could not maintain the revolutionary movement. When the French Revolution dethroned God, it plunged French society in what we have now termed the terror, a mayhem of madness and murder. The revolution revealed secularism's utter inadequacy to establish civilization and an orderly society. In other words, without God, they could not maintain order. Now, interestingly, I was thinking a bit about that. By the way, I highly recommend that book. Interestingly, because of the moral catastrophe and the tyranny of the leaders and the mayhem of society that resulted from the French Revolution, the emperor who followed in 1801 was a man named Napoleon. He was a totalitarian leader, uh, a dictator. But listen to this, Napoleon Bonaparte uh, just about 20 years later recognized really not even that long he recognized something that the church was necessary in order to main, uh, maintain order and morality in the culture and so he reestablished the church but he reestablished it as the state church so the state controlled the church he didn't he didn't reestablish it so much because of he wanted the influence of god He just wanted the influence of order and morality. And so, as you can imagine, the the gospel lost its influence. And by the way, the state of the church remained to this day, but most of them have become museums, losing their influence in the culture. By the way, Notre Dame, which burned, uh, uh, is being rebuilt by the state, not by the church, because the state actually owned it. Do you know that? The state owned it the catholic church uh, would gather in it for its worship services but it was it was more of an icon of the state than of the gospel moeller adds by the way in his book he says now listen to this this is a very important statement when the storm of secularism thunders on the horizon it often seems unassuming undaunting a mere change in the cultural weather But secularism will seduce a civilization away from the very foundations that it stood upon for centuries. Well, that's exactly what had happened to Israel in Joel 2, and it is exactly what has happened to the foundations in America. Now, is there hope? Yes, as I've said, that's the short answer. Joel both warned and encouraged the people of God you may be familiar with a proclamation of prayer and fasting that was issued by our president Abraham Lincoln on April 30th 1863 let me let me quote that what uh, that prompted that uh, proclamation he said this we have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven he's talking about America of course we have been preserved uh, these many years in peace and prosperity we've grown in numbers Wealth and power as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all of these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken Uh, success we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace too proud to pray to god to the god that made us and so it behooves us then to humble ourselves before the offended power and to confess our national sins and to pray for clemency and forgiveness he's talking about returning that's 1863 and it couldn't be more appropriate i believe than it is today it is all about returning, uh, a nation returning to God. That's what Joel was challenging these, uh, the people of God with, and it is the challenge for us today. And returning, and you see that word mentioned in the text, is uh, simply put, uh, repentance. Uh, it's precisely what uh, God meant and what Joel was offering. You see, there's no way to escape the coming judgment unless the people returned to God god that's what joel was saying there is judgment coming you if you don't understand the first warning then i'm warning you that there's ultimate judgment coming that you cannot uh, escape from and the only way you can escape is to return to the lord and so he spoke of three things that are essential it was essential to their future it's essential to ours as well let me give them to you this morning first of all he spoke of the moment of our return verse 12 the moment of our return Look at verse 12. Yet even now, circle the word now, I firmly believe that our nation, uh, that, that our nation, if it returns, it has to start with a serious pursuit of God. There's an urgency about returning to the Lord. Would you agree with that? And uh, there's an urgency in this passage. The word now reminds us that, that Joel wasn't saying, now eventually if you'll come back to God, uh god will relent he was saying right now now bible says now is the day of salvation if you don't know christ today is the day to meet christ you don't know if you'll have a tomorrow now is the day of salvation now is the time to turn back to god it was true of them It is true for us. And if we do not heed the warning of Scripture, the opportunity for repentance will eventually expire. Did you know that uh, that our nation has an expiration date? That there is a day coming if we do not turn to God where the expiration date will kick in. And uh, it has been said that if we put off repentance another day, we have a day more to repent of and a day less to repent in. Why is there such an urgency to repentance? Well, number one, because we, we don't control the clock of our life. The Scripture makes that clear in Psalm 139, where, where God said, Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me. Listen to this. When as yet there, were, there, there was none of them, your life was roadmapped out before you ever came in Uh, To uh, this world. God knew exactly how many days he had allotted to you He he has equipped you to live out your purpose for him in those days. That's a fact. All right But that also leads us to an urgency to repent if there's if you're if you're not taking serious your Relationship with God your walk with God. This is a time right now to repent if you're harboring sin in your life and you're living with sin, and you're not dealing with that sin. Now is the time to repent, because you don't know the span of your life. You don't control the clock of your life. I had a high school a friend. Uh, we played ball together, and in um, high school, and 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 we went to college together. And uh, I will never forget. He was a very strong, godly influence on our high school campus. We were, we were very close friends and uh, we got to college and he suddenly departed. He wandered off from the faith, you might say. He didn't leave Christ. He wandered off from the faith and, and I will never forget, uh, I went to him and I sat down with him. We were fraternity brothers in college and I sat down with him one day. We'd been there, I don't know, a couple of semesters and I said, I, I just want to talk to you about something. I said, what are you doing? You're walking like a person that doesn't know Christ. And I'll never forget what he said. He ducked his head. We were sitting at a table in the cafeteria, and he ducked his head and he shook it and he said, Ray, I know, I know. He said, I just want to live this way for a while, and then I'll eventually get everything right with God. By the way, I saw him at a 40th high school reunion, and uh, he introduced me uh, to, let me just say, the lady in his life. And he, he said, Oh, you, he said, I want you to. He said, This man saved my life. I don't think I did. I, by the way, I know only Jesus saves a life. I, I, he didn't mean it that way. <clears throat> but I want to tell you something, friend. Listen to me. This isn't the time to say, I will eventually get it right. Because you don't know how much time you have. Now is the time. You can't take that chance. James said this, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. But a second reason that it's urgent is because Christ is going to return unexpectedly. Christ is coming back and that changes or it should change the way we live in Matthew 24 Jesus said therefore you also must be ready for the Son of Man's coming at an hour you do not expect you don't know when he's gonna return that means we must live with vigilance for the kingdom of God right now that's why repentance is urgent we don't know when he's going to return we all know the fact if we could put a, a date a time Uh, An hour a minute on the return of Christ I want to tell you something there's not a person in this room that wouldn't change some things in their life there's not a person in this room that say he's coming back and I know what that means and, and I've got there's some things I need to deal with well the fact is he may and the fact is now is the time to deal with those things and it starts first with the family of God here's a third reason it's urgent and that is because the longer we delay the harder we become Do you understand what i mean by that you see the more you resist god by the way god said my spirit will not always strive with man i'm not going to constantly constantly keep on pushing them and pushing if they keep resisting and resisting and resisting i'll let them resist and go their way listen the longer we delay, the harder we become. The colder our heart becomes, the less sensitive we are to His Spirit. And listen to what the Apostle Paul wrote to the Roman Christians in Rome uh, uh, who, were, who, who were living for everything but God. He writes this to them. He says, because of your hardened and unrepentant hearts, did you get that, unrepentant hearts? Listen, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. Because of an unrepentant heart, he said, Listen, he said, You're storing up wrath, storing up. That's why now is the time. That's why there is an urgency about the moment. Industrialist Charles Swab, you know that name, he was a key figure in Andrew Carnegie's steel empire. And he was frustrated with his inability to get everything done to uh, advance the, the steel industry that Carnegie had helped establish. And he once reluctantly agreed to meet with a consultant named Ivy Lee. And uh, he was, Ivy Lee was recommended to Swab by John D. Rockefeller and said, this guy can really help you, he's a consultant. Swab had little use for consultants, but because Rockefeller had uh, suggested it, he decided to meet with Lee. And Lee brought a proposal to, uh, to uh, Charles Swab on how to improve what was happening and improve the impact of U.S. Steel, uh, or, or Carnegie Steel, I should say. And this is the recommendation Um, that uh, ivy lee made to swap he told him to make a list of the six most important things that he could do the next day that would further the overall health and function of the steel industry and at the end of the day he said uh review your list move anything that you had not been able to finish to the top of the next day's list and then add enough additional items to make the list six again within 15 minutes the meeting concluded Lee told Swab to follow this practice for 30 days and he said at the end of the 30 days send me a payment based on how much you think my advice is worth after 30 days Charles Swab sent Ivy Lee a check for $25,000 now let me tell you that repentance is the most important thing on the list It's the most important thing that can be done to further the health and the function of this nation, I believe. But not only is it the most important thing you can do for our nation, listen, it is the most important thing you can do for your eternal soul. And so it's at the top of the list. And its value is incalculable. And now is the time now is the time so that's why it's important to understand the moment of return the moment of repentance it is right now it's never tomorrow it's not a wednesday solemn assembly it's right now and if there is if there's stuff in your life junk in your life that you need to repent of you need to do it today and then there's a second thing that relates to our repentance or our return that is given to us in our passage and that is i want you to note the method of our return in verses 12 and 13 says return to me with all of your heart with all of your heart joel says with all of your heart and then did you notice he also goes on to say in verse 13 and rend uh, your your hearts and not your garments the point is this when it comes to returning to god the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart When it comes to returning to God the heart of the matter is the matter of our hearts because that's where it starts it's not religious motions it's soul surgery that's why he distinguishes between rend your hearts and not your garments see they knew the religious motions was to to Tear their clothing and even put on uh, uh, ashes and sometimes sackcloth and, and walk around saying, See, I'm in a mode of repentance. But he's saying, Listen, time is past putting on a religious show. It is time for you to, to rend your heart, to have a broken heart over sin, and then to surrender with all of your heart. It has to be a wholehearted return. That means complete. It means without reservation. It means without condition. It is saying, God, I withhold nothing. It is saying, Jesus, I surrender all. I love the story of General William Booth. General William Booth was a founder of Salvation Army, and he was once asked the secret of his success. And after some hesitation and with tears coming out of his eyes, he said, I will tell you the secret. God has had all there was of me. There have been men with greater brains than I have, men with greater opportunities than I have. But from the day that I got the poor of London on my heart and I caught a vision of what Jesus could do uh, with them on that day, I made up my mind that God would have all of William Booth that there was to have. He was being interviewed by Dr. J. Wilbur Chapman, one of the great preachers in Christian history. And Chapman remarked after hearing that, he said, I learned from William Booth. That the greatness of a man's power is measured by his surrender to God. That's what Joel is saying. Rend your heart, surrender, repent, return, return wholeheartedly. And returning to God starts uh, starts and manifests itself. He says, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. Fasting, that is a genuine expression of a surrendered heart. And weeping, that reflects a genuine sorrow over sin. And mourning that points to feelings of regret Uh, these were not a religious show he's not talking about doing those things uh, as a part of the motions he's talking about doing those things as a genuine expression of brokenheartedness returning to God I want to ask you this morning what effect does the awareness of your sin have on you the Bible says there's now no condemnation For those who are in Christ Jesus, amen to that, right? Praise God for that. But there needs to be a godly sorrow for sin that we allow to to operate and function in our life. You know, I'm a master at pointing out other people's sins. How about you? I'm a pro at it. In fact, if I'm not careful, I can stay inside the boundaries of the the kingdom of God and the church of God, and I can look out in the world and I can say, Look how bad it is, and look what's happening and what's going on, and I can point out the sins of the world, the sins of people that don't know Christ. I can point it out and forget that I too am a sinner and that I need to deal with sin. Have you dealt with sin? Paul confronted the Corinthians on their sins, and it convicted them, and it caused them to grieve. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 7, he says, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. He wrote them a strong letter. He confronted their sin, and it grieved them, and he said, you know what? He said, I'm not rejoicing in your grief, but he said, I am rejoicing in the fact that your grief led you to repentance. He said, for you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. He says there's nothing uh, eternal about worldly grief. I'm sorry, I got caught. That doesn't lead anywhere in the kingdom. But a godly grief, God, I've offended you. You remember when David was confronted with his sin? Do you remember what he said? God, against you you, and you alone have I sinned. It always starts right there. It has implications and it has effects on others, but it always starts right there. And that's what God wants us to understand is that, that repentance should cause grief in our, I mean, sin should cause grief in our hearts. It leads us uh, to, back to God when was the last time you wept over your sin when when was the last time when you wept over the sins of the nation in his book I surrender Patrick Morley writes that the church's integrity problem is in its misconception that what we can do is we can add Christ to our lives but not deal with sin it is a he says a change in belief without a change in behavior And he goes on to say, it's like trying to have revival without reformation or without repentance. Okay, I want to add Christ into my life, but I don't want to deal with anything that I know that Christ wants me to deal with. Returning to God means change. It means surrendering. It means dealing with sin, not just adding Christ or adding religion on top of the mix. And so there's the moment of return now there's the method of uh, return with our whole heart and here's the last thing i give you today and that is the motive of our return now the other stuff's been pretty hard i know that but here's the good news right here verses 13 and 14 who knows whether he will not turn and relent in this passage god's people received the warning and they responded And their motive was based on the nature of god that's what i love they 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 thought through who is our god Uh, 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 what is his nature and they said who knows maybe he'll relent why because first of all god is full of grace maybe he'll relent he's full of grace you know what his grace is a result of his incredible love for us That's you can't, there's no other explanation as to why a creator whose creation would rebel against him, would shake their fist in his face, would turn around and say, I'm gonna give you an opportunity for life. Grace is because I love you. I love you. Grace does not excuse sin, by the way, or the need to repent, but it does provide a pathway back. But let's go back to Romans for a second. Paul was talking to the Romans. And he says to them, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound, God forbid. It is the strongest negative in the Greek language, meganoato. It means no, 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 never, 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 never. And here's why he writes that, because these believers in Rome, what they were doing is they were saying, well, God is a God of grace. We've discovered grace. Grace is a wonderful thing. We're not saved by the law. We're not saved by works. We're saved by grace. That is such a great thing. Here's what we do. God loves to dispense his grace amen to that right so if God likes to dispense grace let's help him out let's just sin off the charts and then we get to experience more grace hence now you understand why he said shall we continue in sin that grace may abound let's just keep on sinning because you know God's a God of grace he loves grace and he'll just keep on pouring on the grace listen don't presume upon the grace of god don't presume upon the grace of god don't and that's what paul was saying to them he said god forbid grace does not excuse sin or the need to repent but it does provide here's the the love of god and the grace of god provide the pathway into his presence he also talked about the nature of god is merciful did you notice that in those verses i mean they're the motive for our return is because God is a God of grace. The motive is because God is merciful. His mercy is because He knows that without Him, we are pitiful and helpless people. No matter how sharp we are, no matter how brilliant we may think, no matter uh, what our plans are, God knows we are helpless without Him. And, and from the eternal perspective, God looks down upon His creation and He, and he looks at them with pity. You remember that scene where Jesus comes up on on a hillside and he looks down and he sees the people milling about and it's in Matthew chapter 9 and he says this line he looks at them and it says he was moved to compassion because when he looked at the people he saw them. he said they're like sheep without a shepherd they thought it was they had it all together but when Jesus looked down he really knew the truth and he had pity upon them literally the Bible said he had pity upon them because they were like sheep without a shepherd God knows that and that's why he is merciful because he understands us it's why Jesus on the cross would call out and say something that is hard for us to comprehend father forgive them they don't know what they're doing I'm here because they don't know what they're doing God is God of mercy and the Hebrew word for mercy means compassion to be deeply moved it's a story by the way of the prodigal son if you want an illustration of it it's the story of the prodigal son you know the story right at least act like you do. I've preached on it a bunch over 19 years. I mean, y'all, <laughs> yeah, the prodigal son, he see, the father sees him from a distance and he, he rushes out to meet him. Puts the robe on him, the ring, sandals on his feet, all of that. This, that's the picture of grace. It is the story of grace, not of, uh, uh, of deserved response, but of grace and mercy, compassion. It says the father was compassionate when he saw the son. And so they say, you know, just maybe if we will repent, God will show mercy because he's a merciful God. And then third, God is slow to anger, he says. His patience is based in his desire to have an intimate relationship with his creation. Why? <laughs> have you ever thought that, why does God put up with us? Uh, why does God put up with us? Because he doesn't have to, does he? And, and by the way, it's why we're, we're mortals and he's immortal because if it were you or me up there we would be zapping people right but his patience is uh, long uh, and enduring and that is because he desires to have an intimate relationship with his creation we're in the last days series and you know there's this wonderful verse in Peter they were saying well where's the evidence that Christ is going to return and do you remember what Peter says god is not slow concerning his uh, uh, his promise he's going to return but he is patient toward us not willing that any should come uh, that any should perish but that all should come to repentance incredible that's why god is slow to anger but his anger does have limitations i had a man tell me uh, a couple years ago said you know nowhere in the bible does god get angry i said you just don't know your bible I mean you don't know your Bible it's amazing how many passages where it says and God was angry there is a limitation to his patience he is a God of grace he is a God of mercy and he is slow to anger but don't misunderstand there are limitations and then he is abounding in steadfast love so these are all the reasons see they're saying just maybe if we will repent and we will return to him because this is how he is he's full of grace he's full of mercy he's slow to anger and he's abounding in steadfast love the very last thing that God wants to uh to bring on his children is the discipline of disaster and did you notice that Joel said maybe he'll relent from the disaster and instead bless us Uh, that's what Joel said maybe he'll relent from the disaster and instead leave us a blessing God is abounding in steadfast love his love overflows imagine loving someone beyond the ability to describe abounding love love that never quits love that never changes that is God's love for us We, we we have relationships don't we where we we love unconditionally. We love powerfully. But I want to tell you something. On your best day, focus on the, the person you love the most. It still doesn't compare to the incredible love of God. Recently, Karis and Bodie were down uh, visiting. And I set out on our sunroom with uh, Karis and uh, Bodie. And he's running around playing. And uh, I'm watching her watch him. And after a while, I said to her, I said, uh, Sweetheart, did you ever think that you could feel such love for anything like that little boy? And she looked, she said, Daddy, I never knew. I never knew. My wife describes it this way. She says, It's like your heart coming out of your body and running around on legs. (laughs) It's a good way to describe it. And you know that feeling, don't you? you know that feeling of that kind of love well that's how god loves you and that's why there is hope for america a nation can turn back to god because of all of the reasons i just gave his mercy and his grace and his abounding love and his uh, and his patience with us a nation can turn back to god for all of those reasons but it must begin with us his people and maybe he will turn and maybe he'll relent But returning, listen, is personal before it's ever corporate. Returning is personal before it's ever national. I don't know, you're probably like me, but I sure wish they'd all get it right out there. I wish they'd get it right because we got it right. But the fact is, we got to deal with us if we ever want God to move there on February 24th 2001 a one-year-old little girl wandered out of her home in Canada and she spent the entire night out in the winter Edmonton uh, uh, cold when her mother Leela Norby found her she appeared to be totally frozen her legs were stiff. Her body frozen. All signs of life appeared to be gone. She was taken to Edmonton's Stollery Children's Hospital, and there she was resuscitated. And to the amazement of all the people there, it appeared that there was no signs of any kind of internal damage nor brain damage. She was given a clear prognosis and released. Now I tell you that to say this: when a Christian wanders from God, they freeze. They're they become cold and hard. They become lifeless. But the good news is the mercy and the grace of God is able to restore life and resuscitate that wanderer. But we have to return. I want to challenge you this morning to deal with anything you need to deal with. I don't know what that means. But if there's something in your life you need to deal with, it may be a sorry attitude. It may be some harbored sin. I don't know. But now is the time to deal with that. Right now. So that just maybe God will uh, relent. And just maybe God will use the church to bring about a movement across this land because there is another day coming. Judge Horace Gray of Boston, who later went on to serve on the United States Supreme Court, once said to a man who had escaped conviction on a technicality, and this is what he said to him as he looked down from the bench. He said, I know that you are guilty, and you know that you're guilty. And I wish you to remember that one day you will stand before a better and wiser judge. And that on that occasion you will be dealt with according to justice and not according to the technicalities of the law. You know, man's justice is always subject to errors, isn't it? But God's justice is perfect, no sin escapes his gaze. And though punishment is sometimes delayed as God grants room for repentance it is certain no one escapes God's justice on a technicality and that means us and so is there hope for America yes indeed but I believe with all my heart that that hope begins first with the people of God and that our hearts are pure, that we have returned to him so that he can move in us and through us. Would you pray with me? With your heads bowed and eyes closed, no one's looking about in this place. And those of you who are watching by live stream, maybe today you need to You need to do one of two things. There may be something that you need to repent of or some things that you need to repent of. You know Christ, but your heart has grown cold and distant. You need to call out to Him and say, Lord, I'm sorry. Lord, forgive me. Lord, I return. I'm coming back. I'm making a full turn and coming back to You. You may be in this place today or watching on live stream and say, I don't know that I know Him. I, I, I fear that I don't know Christ. You can change all of that right where you are. You can call out in your heart to him, Lord Jesus, thank you for loving me. I know that I'm a sinner. I know I deserve judgment and eternal punishment, but thank you that you died on the cross for my sins. And right now, I repent of my sin, and I invite you to become my Savior and my Lord and my Master. The Bible says, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved right where you are, if you don't know him, or if you're not certain of him, uh, that you know him, would you call on him? He'll hear that prayer. Lord Jesus, I thank you. Uh, Father, for your grace and mercy, your patience, and your abounding love. We thank you that you've expressed it toward us, Father, not because we deserve it, but because you love us. You, you Father, want us to be related rightly to you and to your kingdom. So, Lord, let to Your move start with us. What an honor it would be, God, if You started a movement across this land. You started right here. You started with us. You started with me. And so, Father, I I ask You to cause those who received You today to not be ashamed of the decision they've made. I, I, I pray, Father, for those who have said, I, there's sin that I, I'm dealing with and I'm, I'm forsaking and I'm wholeheartedly I'm returning to you, Lord. I pray, Father, that you'll protect them from the assault of the enemy who most certainly try to dissuade them from that or try to take them back into old ways and old things. And Father, most of all, we pray that we would be lights for your glory in our nation, in our community, and in our church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.